Okay, we're going to look at um, the next one in our fruitfulness series. This is uh, about God calling us to be fruitful. Steve, I think, uh, found uh, God really speaking to him about this. is on his heart uh, for some weeks, I think, if not months, before the year started, about God's going to bring fruitfulness, but for us to unpack and talk about what it is to be fruitful as a people of God. And um, in actual fact, we're taking verses from Colossians, actually Colossians 3, I think, features quite often in the next few weeks in what we're preaching into on this. So this morning, I just want to read a few verses. So although I'm actually speaking out of verse 14, I want to read the context in Colossians 3. So if you've got a Bible... I'd like you to turn to Colossians chapter 3. Maybe you obviously nowadays do it on your phone or your iPad or something, but whatever it is, turn to Colossians 3, and I'm just going to read from verse 9 to, the, to, to verse 17, just to give us the context of what I want to look at. And I want to talk a little bit about that as we start. So I'm going to start Colossians 3 and verse 9. Do not lie to each other. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I always think it's important to understand what God was saying to the first audience of the Bible, what was God was saying to them then in order to understand through the Holy Spirit's help what God's saying to us now. That is a good principle of Bible reading. If you can find a little bit of help, a study Bible or anything, just to give you a bit of background and a bit of context, it helps. Well, I'm going to do that for you for a moment because this passage in Colossians has a setting. It was once written for a purpose by Paul to the Christians in a city called Colossae. So a little bit of background, because I find this quite exciting, and I think it makes it interesting, and in itself, it teaches us as we just take it in. Because the Colossian church was birthed out of a very exciting time in the ministry of Paul. Between about AD 52 and 55, he was ministering in Ephesus, 
And it was a very successful period of ministry. You can read about it in Acts 19. Lots and lots of people say, thousands actually, some breakthroughs of the spirit, some breakthroughs in terms of the occult uh, domination of the city. People saved. The city shaken actually by the gospel, what we long to see when the Holy Spirit really moves amongst us. And what was happening were people were coming in from the area around to to hear the gospel and to be uh, uh, curious sometimes or drawn in other ways. And a person called Epaphras, who was a resident of Colossae, was one of those people. And you'll see the name Epaphras quite often, not only in the book of Colossians, but one or two other places in Paul's letter. So Epaphras got saved out of that revival and breakthrough time in Ephesus. And he was discipled by Paul, and he grew quickly to be a mature Christian, and he became quite a valuable member of Paul's team around that period. Then Epaphras was sent back to his home area to evangelize it and to plant churches there. And so Epaphras went, you can read this in Colossians, you'll find that he's the one who brought the gospel to the Colossians, to his own home city. He went back and it seems that he at least preached in three places, Laodicea, Hierapolis and Colossae. And he was successful. People got saved and a church was planted in those places, all of them I think, but particularly the one in the Colossian, in Colossae, his home city. So Epaphras would visit Paul occasionally to give him reports on how things were going up there with those young churches. And you will find that Epaphras is the person who visits Paul in prison a few times. And he does that around AD 62. Around AD 62, he visits Paul in prison and brings a report about the church in Colossae. This time it's a slightly mixed report. There's lots of good stuff happening. And you can read about that in chapter 1 of Colossians. But there are a few causes for concern, and Epaphras shares them with Paul for his wisdom and insight. Paul is provoked to write a letter to the Colossians, and that's what we have here, inspired by the Holy Spirit and kept for us and used this morning to speak to us nearly 2,000 years later. It is a friendly letter. It's not like the ones of the Corinthians or even the Galatians where Paul really gets their face because they aren't, the Colossians aren't uh, welcoming false teachers. They're not embracing serious heresy or anything nearly like that. The church is a healthy church by and large. It's well planted. It's been well planted. It's well taught. So there isn't a major battle with heresy. But there is a problem growing, and Paul wants to nip it in the bud. There are internal tensions, and this is because many of the Christians in the church are beginning to take on board what goes on in the culture around, particularly the religious ideas and the spirituality of Colossae and the surrounding towns. And they they probably grew up in them anyway, but they're beginning to blend it in with the gospel and it's causing problems. Dick Lucas in his commentary says this, it was not that these Christians were so fickle and volatile that they were tempted so soon to give a fresh hearing to Jewish or pagan teachers. It was that the whole syncretistic religion, religious environment in which their churches existed threatened the purity of the new faith. Now, you might say, John, why are you telling us all this? Well, I enjoy it, but there is a reason. 
The problem was the syncretistic environment. Now, if you, like me, need to look at a dictionary sometimes for words, you might just not know what that's about. But syncretism means mixing together religious faiths, blending in religious ideas from one religion with another and mixing it all together, taking the cultural values of the city where you are and blending them in with your Christian values. That was what was going on, and that, my friends, goes on today a lot. We have to watch it. It can happen very close to home. I'm not going to even talk about examples. You make them up for yourself. We live in a syncretistic environment. We live in a culture that majors on pluralism of religions, a culture in modern Britain that is proud of the fact that we have interfaith services, that all religions are seen as the same. Basically, they can all mix together and blend together. You can blend spiritualities from one to the other. They're all of equal value. Surely all religions lead to God. Uh, All of that, which I'm quickly headlining, is the culture of modern Britain. And if you start, it's not difficult to feel that that's reasonable and we can build that into our sort of understanding as Christians. That's what was happening at Colossae. I mean, it feels right sometimes. It makes sense to be embracing many of the values of the culture, embracing the things the culture thinks are good, the things the culture thinks are fine. Surely that's okay to bring it into Christianity. You can go beyond spirituality. It's obvious, isn't it? You probably can think of examples yourselves. There's a great pressure sometimes for Christians to blend in the values of the culture where they are and mix them in with their faith. And actually, that seems a good idea. The people at Colossae who were doing it thought it was a good idea, thought it made their faith more accessible, perhaps, to others. It's a modern word, but it's probably some of the things they say. It made it less of a bridge to cross. It made it uh, easier to be a Christian in the context of persecution, possibly. All of those things can happen, and none of them are the reason for doing it. It, it, actually, Paul wants to keep them strong in Christ. There's some marvellous stuff on Jesus in the Colossian epistle. He wants to strengthen their faith in Christ. It won't be more effective to have Jesus and something else, to, to tone Jesus down or try and sort of blur the edges. It's not the effective thing. We have to stand clear on the gospel we were saved by and brought into. And Paul appeals to their loyalty to the truth. He appeals to the Christ-centered doctrine that Epaphras has put into them, which he learned himself from Paul. And actually, in with that, he puts some affectionate warnings that are coming that are things that are growing because actually a disunity is growing divisions are growing because some Christians are really okay with a lot of this extra stuff and others aren't and there is a growing tension and there are inner circles and some are saying well look we'll just stick with the ones of like mind and that possibly was happening on both sides of the argument I'm sure it was because it's all too easy for people to say, well, I just want to be with those who are like me, and I just sit and all agree together that that this is what we need to do. It's a shame the church isn't more whatever, whatever, and so on and so forth. Now, that was creeping in, and Paul does wants none of it. And the passage I read to you, Colossians 3, 9 to 17, particularly has got behind it a concern for unity in the local church. Paul is really going for that subject. His concern is unity in the local church. What you need to know is God loves the church. The church gets a bad press from the world. The devil hates it. That's another matter. God loves his church. God loves the church and he loves local churches. 
Jesus set his church up like this. He set it up to work as a universal family and local families. Very simple, very straightforward. And everything in between, which is okay up to a point, is secondary to, to, to the universal, which is getting more and more people saved, and the local, which is building a healthy body, a healthy community of Christians who are a bright light in their city and in their culture. And that is how the church works. God loves it. Paul, of course, loves it as well. He's got the Spirit of God in him. And he's going to be addressing that in a number of ways in this epistle. But actually, lots of the New Testament addresses this. I mean, if you think about it, lots of letters in the New Testament are to local churches. And often they touch on the subject of unity. If you've got a working knowledge of the Bible, you'll know what I'm talking about. Romans and Corinthians and all sorts of Galatians. So there is a big concern on the heart of God... And it comes through here that we should be united and be one. If we are a local body of Christians working together, we must not allow differences of opinion which are there to divide us. It's not that you can't get rid of them all, but you have to be careful that you don't end up in factions and party spirit. And so in that context, we have this verse 14 which I want to linger over for the rest of what I want to say. And it's an important verse. I think the translation here is okay. I've got the NIV. But the key bit probably is most accurately this. Love is the perfect bond of unity. That's in the NASB. And I just want you to have that in your mind as we talk. Because we're talking about being held together in love, by love. Love is the perfect bond of unity. So I want to talk about two things for a few minutes, love and then unity. And I will spend a little longer on the first one because I feel that God wants me to build a little bit of understanding for for you in if you're not a Christian yet or if you're on the edge of becoming a Christian. Even as we look at love, I want to linger a little bit over one or two points. But we are looking at really unity in the local church. Let's start by thinking about the word love. Now love is probably the fundamental fruit of Christian life. In Galatians 5, verses 22 to 23, we have what's called the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, it's not accidental that love is the top of the list because love is the the, the basic fruit of the Spirit. In another letter, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul talks about uh, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Love is fundamental if we're going to be fruitful Christians. You could argue that all the other issues we look at, all the other things, compassion and, 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 and not lying to one another, things we've just touched even in that reading this morning, they're all pretty artificial if they're not motivated and driven by love. We can be motivated by law. We can be motivated by a desire to please people or human effort in some way or desire to look good. But none of those things produce really quality fruit. The quality fruit that we look for in our lives is love-driven. Love is very important. Love is a major theme in the New Testament. But we need to take a moment to stop and think, what are we talking about when we use the word love? Because love in the Bible is not only a very special word, 
and a very precious word, it actually is the real meaning, the real meaning of love. It's what God means by love and what love means. Now, in our culture and in many cultures, love is an abused word and used in a number of ways. You can talk about all sorts of things you love and what love is, whether it's from the sex act to loving sausages or whatever. You know, the word is used in multiple ways and it gets watered down and spoiled. So we need to understand what does it really mean? What does God mean by love? Because the Bible tells us God is love. Now that's amazing. That doesn't mean love is God, not at all, which was the hippie version of it in the 70s and 80s. No, no, no. God is love. It is It is part of who he is. It's his fundamental character is love. And here's a passage which has that in it, actually, that little quote. 1 John 4, verses 8 to 10. And it says this. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God but that he first loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Can we leave that little passage up for a few moments? Because I want to use it for a few minutes. Love, the word translated in Colossians 1 verse 14, and often the word used for love in the New Testament, is a Greek word agape or agape. And it was actually an obscure Greek word. It was hardly used by the Greeks themselves. It's hardly in any other classical Greek literature, but it's picked up and used all the time in the New Testament. It is a Christian word. It's a word they got hold of, and they realized this word captures what God's like. This word captures what real love is. So actually, Christianity and the Holy Spirit, really, inspired the proper use of the word agape. Agape simply means selfless sacrificing love. It means love that is focused on the one loved and is concerned about their best interests. So in other words, it's driven by a concern and the best interests of the one loved. It's a selfless love and a sacrificing love. And it means love for the unworthy, whether they deserve it or not. It's a love that proceeds from the nature of the lover rather than what's in the one being loved. Now that is a precious, important truth. And that is the sort of love God shows. And it's the sort of love God brings into our hearts when we become Christians. And we'll explore that a little bit in a moment. This is God's love. Now God has always been a loving God. Psalm 118, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. Now the truth of the matter is, we probably struggle to really believe that. I mean if we're honest, even as Christians, we sometimes probably think, is God really loving? Is God good? And does his love endure forever? And and certainly in our culture, that's often a, a mocking or attacking line. Well, God can't be loved. God... God can't be what you say he is. Now, I'm not going to have time to explore it all this morning, but I am going to say just two things, really. The first is a sort of counter-negative 
thing, if not a negative thing, but a thing that counters the, I want you to think about, and then the other is a positive about what God's like. So the, the first counterpoint is this. Do be careful that you don't swallow everything around you and assume that all that is taught is accurate, all the modern cultural view and all the arguments of the atheists, agnostics, they must be all right. After all, look at the world. Be aware that in this world there are not only human beings, there are demons. There's a devil. And one of the characteristics of the devil is deception. He is called a deceiver. He is the father of lies. And right from the very beginning, right from the very beginning, you can read it in the early chapters of Genesis, his basic line is, God's not as good as he looks. He is holding out on you. He isn't anything like as loving as he pretends. He hasn't got your best interests in mind. He wants to keep things from you. He is restrictive. He is mean. He is nasty. Now, they're my modern words, but that is essentially the devil's temptation to Eve and Adam. And actually, it hasn't changed in all the eons of history. He is a deceiver. He is con- he's very good at it. He's constantly getting us to think, surely God can't be what he said he is. Surely he can't be. But actually, you need to remember, deception is deception. <laughs> That's what it is. I, I may have mentioned this before. I mean, if you go to a good magic show, you'll see a magician cut a woman in half, separate the two halves, and, and you know, do wonderful things like that. But you know she hasn't been cut in half because it's back together again. She stands there, waves, and off she goes. So, you know, you, know, you can't work out what's up. It looks as though, to all intents and purposes, she's been cut in half and not. But it's a deception. It, it, it hasn't happened as you genuinely think it has, just looking at it. And yet you know somewhere there's something you don't know or been deceived. Now, I want to say to you, in simple terms, the clear truth is that God is good and God is love. And whatever you see around you that looks as though the opposite is true is fundamentally a deception. Now you can say, oh, but look at that. Look at, oh, sure, but John, what about, yeah, yeah, you can tell me that about the magician. But I know somewhere, I may not understand it, that's not how it is. Right? And it's going to be the same with this. Somewhere underneath, God is not a nasty, vicious, or careless, or couldn't bother. He is good. And his love endures forever. And God is love. Now, we could say a lot of other things, but let's say one huge positive. If we put back up, if you have 1 John 4, if you have, I'm not looking where it is, but 1 John 4 tells us, tells us a bit about how we know it, God is love. Let's reread a couple of verses. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he first loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is the big love statement that proves the heart of God. God sent his son, Jesus, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus, we've just remembered it at Christmas, was born of the Virgin Mary. He was a real man. He was man, but he was God-man conceived of the Holy Ghost. He went around demonstrating the heart of God. You want to know what God's like? Read the Gospels. 
see what Jesus is like, and realize he is God manifest in the flesh. He is the best, clearest image of God. That's what the Bible tells us. You want to know what God's like? Read what Jesus is like. He went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil, Acts 10.38. But Jesus came to do more than demonstrate what God was like. He came to act because God's love is always active. Real love acts on behalf of the one love, the beloved. And Jesus came to deal with our fundamental problem, mine and yours. That problem was we are disconnected from God because of our sin and rebellion. Now, it's not only, it's more complicated than just the things you've done wrong. We are living in a sin-damaged world. Some of us are damaged and distorted by things done to us. But we ourselves have played our part in it. Our hearts breed greed and lust and envy and selfishness and lying and back bitterness. It's just a mess, but it's like a dark, thick, black cloud that has, broken, that has kept us away from God. We're, we have a gap between us and our Creator. And the Holy God needed to deal with the problem, our sin problem, but he didn't want to destroy us. He wanted us as his children. He wanted us reconciled, reconciled to him. And the Bible tells us God was in Jesus Christ, reconciling the world to himself. God was moving out of love, and he was loving the unworthy, that's you and me. He was acting on our best interests. He was self-sacrificing himself. He was selfless. He loved us enough to save us. Isn't that wonderful? To reconcile you to him, to deal with your sin problem and remove it. No man or woman could do that. No, nobody was good enough. There was no other good enough. We're singing the old Easter hymn. There was no other good enough than Jesus because we all were marred with our own sin. We might be some bit better than others, but we're all spoilt by it. And so there is no one who can do it. Well, God did it himself through Jesus. We were all tarnished. And the gospel, and I, you know I love this verse. I make no apology for putting it up again. The gospel is encapsulated In this truth, look up 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Because this is what happened on the cross, driven by God's love. God made Jesus, him, who had no sin, to be sin for us. To be sin for you and for me. So that in him, in Jesus Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. I never tire of that verse. You might get tired about it, but you need to get it in your spirit, and you'll never get tired of it. It's a wonderful verse. It just sums it up. It's God who did it. Nobody else could do it. God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for you. Took your sin on his own body on the cross. Took my sin. So that when I'm in Christ by faith, we talk about that in a moment, in Christ, I can have and become the righteousness of God. I get what he had. He took what I had. He took my sin. I get clothed with his righteousness. Is that not wonderful? Driven and motivated by love, God has provided this extraordinary salvation. And it is a gift. Hear me. It is a gift. It is completely unmerited. You cannot earn it. It is a gift. You don't deserve it, and you cannot earn it. 
And that is the core of the Christian message. Whatever clutter history has added to it, this is the core. It is amazing grace. It is an unmerited favor. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. It's a gift. But there is a however, not a bad one, a serious one you need to think through. However, a gift does not work unless you know about it and unless you accept it. So I might have a gift for you and you don't know I've got it. I might have a gift for you and I offer it to you and you don't want it. So a gift has to be known about and accepted. Now, whatever's happening elsewhere, in this room, you all know about it because I've just told you. There's no one in this room that doesn't know about this wonderful gift of eternal life, sins forgiven, reconciled to God through Jesus. Now, you've got to do something about it if you haven't. I can't take a gift for you. Only you can do it. Well, you say, how do I take it? Well, it's not going to go up on the wall, but this is a verse that would sum it up. Paul says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. It is salvation. This gospel is available for everyone who will believe. You take it by saying, yes, I'll take that. That's for me. That's for me. Want another little verse from Paul? I love one, this one as well, as you know. Paul later, he wouldn't start as a Christian. You can read about his conversion in Acts 9. Paul later says, the Son of God, that's Jesus, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what makes you a real Christian. That you accept this was for you. I needed this. Not only I need this, I take it. I say Jesus is the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now I will pray that. I've been a Christian, I don't know how long. I don't know, nearly 60 years, I don't know, 50 something years. But I still pray prayers like that in my quiet time regularly. I say, thank you, Jesus, that you love me and gave yourself for me. You love John Groves and you gave yourself for John Groves. If Paul can pray that, so can I. Amen? That is how you live as a Christian. It's not saying you do, well, I did that once 40 years ago. No, you you live aware of that. But you do start off by doing that. If you're not a Christian yet... You need to know this morning, God loves you. God has done all he can. There is a gift of free forgiveness, new life, reconciled to God, eternal life available for you this morning if you will believe in Jesus. I'm going to stop right there for a moment. Not finally, but for a moment. I want you just to think about whether you've taken this gift before. And if you haven't, I want you to do it this morning, now. So we're going to close our eyes. I'm going to read a prayer that is a good prayer for you taking this gift. If you want to do it, you can follow this prayer through now, mean it, say it to God, and then come and tell me afterwards, and I'll give you a little booklet just to help you understand a little more of what it is to be a Christian, but actually you'll have already done it if you meant it in this prayer. Come and see me afterwards and get a little booklet. Okay, let's close our eyes for a minute. If you want to take this gift, you've never done it, you can do it this way. Thank you, God, 
for loving me before I ever loved you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me. Thank you that I can get connected to you now because you, Lord Jesus, are alive today. I admit that I've lived my life without you and have messed up. I ask you for total forgiveness and I commit myself to you today. Help me, Lord Jesus, to submit my life to your teaching and your direction from now on. I receive you into my life. I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, I just pray that anyone here this morning who has not known you before, known your love, not known your free gift of eternal life, will receive it now through your grace, through your mercy. Just help them. Open their eyes, Lord. Help them to feel clear what they're doing and bless them from this day on. May they know you, Lord, as their saviour, their friend, their father, Abba Father, their heavenly father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to move on to unity. You see, when you come to know God through Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into you and changes you. That will have happened to you this morning if you've asked Jesus into your life. A change will begin. And one important aspect of that is that the Holy Spirit brings God's love into your heart. Let's look at Romans 5 verse 5. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So when you become a Christian... You change on the inside, and that change doesn't all happen instantly. Often there's instant things. You suddenly feel different in lots of ways. But there is a sort of process where the love of God is poured into your heart, and it begins to change you. God's Spirit changes you from the inside out. There is a softening, a warming, a changing, and you will notice it. You'll notice your attitude change. You'll suddenly feel guilty about things you never once felt guilty about. You might feel awkward or, or, or embarrassed that you said, did certain things to people once. You, you might want to go and apologize to them. You want, might want to put something right. That Zacchaeus, when he's saved in the Gospels, he's immediately met Jesus. He wants to pay people back. He'd ripped off with his tax keeping, tax gathering. And, and, and you know, suddenly God's touching your heart and you want to do stuff to put it right. That's healthy. That's how it works. The, the love of God is shed abroad in your heart. Unity is not a thing driven from the outside. It basically comes like all the other fruit from the inside. So let's look at 1 John 4, 7. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God. You see, real unity can only be driven or undergirded, I don't know what word to use, by love. We can try and be united by a lot of things. We can be united by all, you know, the same doctrines. 
That's not irrelevant. We can be united by sentiment. Oh, we all grew up in the same church or whatever. We can be united by a church affiliation, a simple loyalty. I've always been here, this is my church. Or a common cause or similar interests. We can even be united by enforced codes and rules. Everybody does that this way here. But all of those are imperfect. They're not the perfect bond of unity. They don't bring real unity amongst Christians. Only love does that. Love is the proper bond of unity. True love, Christian love, God's love, will cause us to not just seek what pleases us, not what just is best for us, but it draws us to look for other people's best, to help other people, to bless them and to care for them. And we don't just want to be with people like us which was probably the problem at Colossae. They're all in little groups, beginning to get into little groups. It causes us to break out of that and look to embrace others who are not like us, which is what the fellowship of believers should be, that we are stretched by this love to embrace those that we would never embrace if we hadn't become Christians. We would never have thought of sitting and talking and loving and even giving to these people if we were never Christians. Oh, there's an element of... Uh, altruism that can be found in all sorts of people but this is a more profound thing we know we're one with those who follow Jesus we find our hearts warmed we know this is family this is the people of God and that's true for the whole family if you like all who are Christians say all who are Christians in Winchester are brothers and sisters those who know Jesus and who love him so that's good and we should operate with that attitude But it also particularly works out in the local body. And that's fine. The church has always been local bodies. Often historically, when people couldn't travel very far, they were quite small local bodies. So a big city like Ephesus or Rome would have had innumerable communities right around it where they were gathering in uh, perhaps big big, uh, homes, probably the wealthier people's homes or something. So the idea of congregations or groups that are little communities within the community is totally biblical. We are one, Hope Church Winchester. And it's there that you really work this out nitty-gritty, practically. Because it's easy to love someone in Africa or India, and, and it's right to love them. It's even easier to love someone you don't see very often who, who meets in the local Anglicans or something. But actually to love the people in your group, to love the people who are there not enough to know what's wrong with them, you see their funny characteristics. You know, all the things that aren't as they should be, well, that's where love's worked out. That's where you work it out. You, you, you know, I love all Christians. Yeah, what about the one sitting next to you? Yes, yes, yes. Good, you love all Christians. But it's, and that's really what the Bible's saying. When Paul writes innumerably, as I've already indicated, to most of the churches, and this one here, and exhorts them to love, he's talking about people who don't lie to each other and stuff we can unpack another time. He's basically talking to people who you could lie to and perhaps do, and people who you do get cross with and don't, do need to forgive. So when he, you know, he says, you know, forgive as the Lord forgave you. If you've got a grievance against someone, well, I've got no grievance against Christians in Russia, personally. But, oh, wow, you, I might struggle with... you know what I mean? That wasn't meant in person, Matthew. (laughs) I haven't got a grievance with you at the moment. Uh, (laughs) um, No, no. This is about the reality of real relationships in the community where we are. All the writers of the New Testament do it. Peter 
puts it very simply. I even see their character in this. Peter puts it simply. Love the family of believers. John puts it bluntly because John and James were the sons of thunder. And I think they were quite in-your-face characters. So John says, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Oh, thanks, John. Yeah, right. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. I mean, they're all saying the same thing. It works out on the ground by loving each other. And I believe as part of our fruitfulness, that's what God's calling us to do. To grow in our love for one another. Now, this is a lovely church. Honestly, Marion and I were saying the other day how much we enjoy being part of this church. We went home from, I think, a couple of things recently we've said it. Um, just felt the blessing of God, felt so many good people. I think Marion made the comment after the women's breakfast to me yesterday. I, I, we said it after one of the prayer meetings. I just remember, quite naturally, you know, it's not just good. You know, Steve's been leading it for goodness knows how long these days. It's not, it's not, 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 this is not personal, like, oh, I've got a really nice church I'm leading. No, no, no. This is just enjoying you as people. It's not about the leadership. It's about you. And you think, this is a great church. But God wants us to go on being fruitful in our love for one another, to go on growing in our love. And it would be naive to suggest everything's perfect, because it isn't. That word perfect there probably means complete. There's, there's a maturity that comes as we grow loving one another all the time. So as we finish, I want to put up one last scripture. If you could do that for me. 1 Corinthians 13. Now, this is a famous love passage from, from the New Testament. And it is a summary of God's love. And so there's two wonderful things from this passage. It tells you what God is like towards you. Because God wouldn't ask you to do something he didn't do himself. So love is patient, love is kind, means God is patient and kind. And we can go on all the way through like that. Because he wouldn't ask you to do something he doesn't do himself. What he's really saying is, this is love, this is me, and this is what you are called to and are enabled towards by my Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit sheds love abroad in your heart, this is what he's shedding in your heart. So if the musicians could come up, I want to leave that verse up there, or those verses, I want to read it to you. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7. Love is patient Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And as we finish... While the musicians are playing, I'm going to encourage you to stay seated for the time being. I'm going to ask that Chris leaves those verses up. I just want the Holy Spirit to settle in your heart these truths. That I am committed to working out love in this community, or if you're a visitor in the community of faith where you are. I'm committed to trying to make this work as best it requires of me, whatever it requires of me. And I wonder if the Holy Spirit, I'm going to pray this, if the Holy Spirit puts his finger on something where maybe you are keeping a record of wrongs or you've been easily angered or something like that, you're struggling with a trust issue with a fellow Christian, 
that you would just ask God to help you. Just quietly ask God, help me to put that right. Remember, love is selfless. It's sacrificing. It's all for the benefit of the one loved. It's not so much about you. That's real love. And I just want the Holy Spirit to touch your heart, just to commit yourself to doing what you can. Maybe it will be an action at an appropriate moment, but I'm not asking you to rush to that. Just asking the Spirit to seal at the beginning of the year that we are going to go up a gear even in this precious area of love for one another. I don't feel I'm speaking to something which I feel is an urgent, oh, there's a crisis, I better preach on love. It's the opposite. I feel very comfortable, feel very blessed with this church, but I want us to go further. Amen? I want us to be stretched into this area as well as other areas that we love beyond what we've loved in the past. So those verses can just serve as a meditation while they sing the song, while they play the song, and then we will sing the song in a moment. I'll pray and we'll sing the song. Let's sit sit there quietly for a minute. Thank you. Lord, I so thank you that you are a God of love. Thank you, Lord, that these words give us great reassurance that you're patient with us. You're kind. You didn't seek your own self-seeking. You you sought our good. Lord, you haven't kept a record of my wrongs. You've washed them away in the blood of Jesus. You protect me, Lord. You persevere with me. You've begun a good work in me and you're going to bring it to completion. And Lord, your challenge to us is that we forgive as the Lord forgave you. Lord, as you've forgiven us, we want to forgive others. As you've been patient with us, we want to be patient with others. You've been kind to us, we want to be kind to others. We want to persevere, not get impatient and dismissive and brush them aside. Lord, help us to be a community of love to a higher degree than we've been before, to demonstrate something different to the culture around, something different to people. Lord, there are good people around, or people who can do good, but Lord, we don't want to just be do-gooders. We want to be people who love one another. We want to be people who show real agape, love to one another and to those who come in amongst us to expand it real love is active real love is expansive that's how your love is Lord it expands it it keeps stretching because that's how it is it works it's not just rationed to one or two people 
Lord, help us to be that sort of people this year and in any, all the years ahead while you leave us here. We ask that in Jesus' name.